Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. We are at the halfway point of 2021. In this week's podcast, we feature our analysts' takes on the year so far. Find out how ETFs and funds have been performing, get some ideas for dividends, and learn some tips on how to perform an effective mid-year portfolio checkup. Let's get started. Here are Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. and Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Half of 2021 is in the books. Here with me to provide a mid-year look at the ETF landscape is Ben Johnson. Ben is Morningstar's Global Director of ETF Research. Hi, Ben. Thanks for being here today. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. So let's begin by talking a little bit about first-half performance through the lens of ETFs. Yeah, well, I, I think if you look at the performance of, of major market segments through the first half of, of 2021, what's most interesting to me as we sit here in, in mid-June is a, a reversal of some major trends that we saw take root in, in 2020. As most of the world went under lockdown, the economy closed, here we are in the middle of, of 2021, and, and we're all re-emerging. And what you see is that some of the hardest hit market segments in, in 2020 indeed are re-emerging through the first six months of 2021. I think one of the most significant reversals we've seen is, has been actually within the U.S. stock market. And specifically, if you look at the divergence between U.S. large cap growth stocks and U.S. small cap value stocks. So if you look specifically at the performance of the Morningstar U.S. small value index, it's up 32% for the year to date through mid-June in 2021. In 2020, that index finished roughly flat. Meanwhile, the Morningstar US Large Growth Index is up just under 9% for the year to date. It was up 39% in 2020. And underpinning that is, is really shifts in leadership we've seen kind of at the sector and the industry level. Um, and notably, some of those sectors that were most beaten down uh, as the economy went on lockdown and ground to a halt, are the ones that have rebounded most strongly off the bottom. And you look in the energy patch, specifically um, in energy services, you know, oil and gas, you know, drilling, some of the ETFs that invest in that sector have rebounded significantly from their early 2020 bottom. And what we've seen is, is kind of a pause or a reversal in the performance of some of the best performing ETFs of 2020, most notably in the clean energy space. Clean energy ETFs have been market darlings for a long time. A lot of that was you know, capturing investors' enthusiasm around some form or another of Green New Deal, uh, you know, growing global awareness around climate risk, and growing investment in, in new forms of energy. What we've seen thus far in 2021 is that a lot of that enthusiasm is fizzled and performance has followed. So let's pivot and look a little bit at ATF flows for the year to date. Uh, where have investors been putting their dollars? So investors have, have putting, been putting their dollars into ETFs at, at a record rate, first and foremost. So through mid-June, what we've seen is that ETFs combined have collected $443 billion in net new flows. At that rate, if we were to continue at this pace, which is no guarantee through the remainder of the year, ETF flows would absolutely shatter. They would blow to smithereens all prior records for, for calendar year flows. 
And what I think that reflects is a, a number of different things. And I think first and foremost, it's reflective of investor sentiment. Investors are looking now for a reason you know, not to jump into the market. And they're jumping in with both feet, at least as evidenced by the ETF flows that we've seen thus far through this year. Now, if you look at it more granularly, you know, where among the 2,600 plus ETFs are investors actually plunking down new money, uh, they're going to the usual suspects. So if you look at the top 20 ETFs, uh, they represent a, a tiny minority of the 2,600 plus options on the menu, but they've represented nearly the majority of flows thus far in 2021. And among those 20 ETFs, there are just four that are not broadly diversified, market cap weighted, dirt cheap, and supremely tax efficient. So investors are, are, are sticking to their knitting. They're generally putting their money into broad US total market funds, emerging markets total market funds, international total market funds, core bond allocations, funds that are underpinned by the Bloomberg Barclays aggregate index. Uh, you know, they're keeping it simple, they're, they're keeping it cheap, which is a trend we've seen uh, you know, now for, for quite some time within the ETF marketplace. You know, the other area that I would single out is uh, specifically U.S. value stocks. And, and not just U.S. value stocks, I, I should stress actually, but, but value stocks more broadly. So if you look specifically across ETFs that fall in the Morningstar, either large, mid, or small value categories, what we've seen is that through mid-June 2021, $68.5 billion of net new money has gone into U.S. stock value ETFs. Value has been resurgent, as I alluded to earlier, and investors are piling on in a way that they haven't in years. And then lastly, Ben, would you say that there are any stories that have been particularly noteworthy in the ETF landscape the first half of 2021? Well, I, I think one of the, the, the more in, interesting and, in, 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 in my mind, entertaining stories uh, really falls in, in, in the camp of, of ETF product development. So some may recall that you know, while we were living in lockdown and um, you know, living, working, doing everything from home last year, there were three different work from home themed ETFs that were launched in 2020. Now, if you fast forward to today, what we've seen thus far this year is that there are any number of different reopening themed ETFs that are now being launched. Like, let's get back to work. Let's get out in the world. Let's invest in all of those companies that are positioned to benefit from things beginning to normalize. So be it cruise lines, airlines, hotels, you name it, as, as we get out of our house and, and back into the world. So, um, you know, it, it, it's a trend we see play out time and time again that you know, product development tends to you know, focus on, you know, whatever's in, kind of right in front of our face and whatever's performing well, too. And a lot of these sectors have, have performed quite well as things have begun to normalize. So I, I think that's interesting. The, the other sort of, you know, less sort of entertaining and more substantial developments that we've seen, I, I think, are really highlighted by the recent conversion of four of Dimensional Fund Advisors' tax-managed mutual funds into ETFs. Now, these four funds collectively hold nearly $30 billion in investors' money, 
and I think are just the latest marker, the latest data point in this trend that we see, which in my mind points to the fact that ETFs have arrived. ETFs, yeah, I would argue, have long since been mainstreamed. But when you begin seeing, and, and dimensional fund advisors is just one among currently just two examples of mutual funds converting to ETFs, it, it reflects in my mind a growing recognition among not just product manufacturers, the asset managers, but also their clients, investors, that the ETF is just a wrapper. And it's a wrapper that has certain very important benefits for investors, namely cost efficiency, tax efficiency, availability to the extent that they trade like a stock on exchange. And I think the direction of travel has long been clear, but is clearer still that you know, ETFs are going to continue to gain market share from other formats. And I think most notably from traditional mutual funds as investors begin to recognize these benefits and allocate more of their capital at the margin uh, to ETFs or in other cases, uh, we could very well see more mutual funds convert to an ETF format in the future. So another data point among many that, that ETFs have arrived that uh, they're more popular for investors and they're more popular because they're doing good for investors at, in, at the end of the day. Uh, they're you know, a format that allows investors to keep more for themselves and fork less over to either asset managers or, or Uncle Sam. And that's a good thing. That sure is. Um, ben, thank you for your perspective today on the first half of 2021. And uh, we'll see you again in six months and talk a little bit about how Perhaps things have changed through the remainder of 2021. We appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Susan Jabinski talks to Russ Kinnell from Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. We're halfway through 2021. Joining me today to talk about fund performance and fund flows during the first half of the year is Russ Kinnell. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Hey, Russ, thanks for being here today. Glad to be here. So let's start out by talking a little bit about performance for the year to date. Uh, what fan, fund categories have done especially well during the first half and what's been driving that performance? Uh, yeah, uh, energy's been doing really well, small value, uh, real estate, financials, um, all the areas that were terrible to be in in the COVID sell-off in the first quarter of 2020 have been the best places uh, this year and it's really, uh, the reverse, right? We've people are being vaccinated. The, the economy is uh, surging back, and so a lot of those uh, areas were really economically sensitive. And so now, with the economy coming back, uh, those areas have rebounded from what were very cheap levels. So uh, there's a logic to that. Then let's look at the flip side. Uh, what fund categories have underperformed, and why? Uh, yeah. Um, Long government, long bond, world bond, and precious metals have all uh, lost money so far this year. Um, and again, it's sort of the flip side that uh, long bonds are a great place to be. 
when the economy slows down, especially if it's high quality like government. Uh, so now we're kind of going the reverse. So there's the threat of rising rates, possibly rising inflation. Uh, so that scares off uh, long government as well. And then precious metals, I think, is um, it's it's always a wild card, but I but I think maybe that things seem relatively stable is probably not good for precious metals. Let's talk a little bit about a few specific fund surprises this year. In general, you know, value funds have done quite well this year, um, but there are a, a couple of um, value funds that have done exceptionally well relative to their peers. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, funds like Hotchkiss and Wiley Mid Value. Uh, DFA, U.S. small value, um, have done really well. And again, those are funds that really got crushed uh, in the bear market last year. Hotchkiss and Wiley mid-value is one of the worst performers. Huge energy bet. Of course, it gets hurt. And then I think DFA just reflects that uh, that low end, that cheap end of, of the small cap area was, was the worst place to be last year. And so now, again, we're getting uh, that rebound. That's a good reminder that uh, sell-offs can be dramatic, but so can the rebounds. The rebounds can be pretty violent too. And conversely, growth funds have struggled a little bit this year relative to value funds. And we've seen a couple of our favorite smaller growth funds from Artisan and Brown Capital Management really bring up the rear um, in their respective categories this year. What, what's going on there? Yeah, sectors really tell the story. If you look at both Brown and Artisan, their portfolios are almost all tech and healthcare. And tech's done okay, but healthcare has been hurt. So being overweight healthcare hurts. And then they also are lighter in some of the uh, value side that some of their peers might at least have some exposure to like financials. So that combination uh, is pretty rough. So those two funds are about flat for the first half. And then let's talk a little bit about flows for the year to date. Um, bond funds continue to attract assets from investors, despite the fact that the stock market's done quite well during the first half of, of the year. Um, what categories in particular have been getting the most attention and why do you think that is? Yeah, it seems like core bond funds are really popular. So intermediate core, intermediate core plus and short-term bond. And as you say, uh, if you're looking at returns, you wouldn't have guessed those would be the big draws. I think some of it is still uh, maybe just remembering last year where, where it was pretty scary time uh, to be in the equity markets, even though for them it turned out pretty well, but it was very scary for a while there. So I think that some of it is just risk aversion. Uh, some of it may also be a little rebalancing that uh, after equities outperformed the prior year, uh, some of that money may be uh, just moving into bonds uh, to, to compensate for the fact that their bond portfolio was drawn down a bit. So Russ, the large blend and the large growth categories have seen pretty sizable outflows this year. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, yeah, we, we've seen within open and large growth and large blend are getting a lot of redemptions. I think it reflects a, a move uh, that we've seen for a long running time, uh, move from active to passive. Uh, also growth had a, a bit of a hiccup earlier in the year and that may have uh, scared off some people. Well, Russ, thank you so much for your perspective on the first half of 2021, and we'll talk to you again in December or early January to recap the entire year. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Next, Dave Sakara from Morningstar Research Services highlights dividend ideas. Investors focused on income 
have been having an increasingly harder time finding new opportunities this year. The stock market has been making new highs as earnings growth has been robust, but dividend growth has not been able to keep up with prices, and as such, dividend yields have been falling. In the fixed income market, interest rates on U.S. Treasury bonds bottomed out earlier this year, and they have rebounded a bit, but at 1.5%, the yield on a 10-year Treasury bond has still only returned to its pre-pandemic historical lows. In the corporate bond market, credit spread on corporate bonds does provide some extra yield for investors, but the spreads are at their tightest levels since before the 2008 global financial crisis. Currently, the yield on the Morningstar corporate bond index is only 2%, and the yield on our high yield index is only 4%. So with fixed income investments offering such low returns, many investors have turned to dividend-paying stocks. We do think this is a worthwhile strategy, but we also believe it pays to be choosy in the stock market. Among dividend stocks, we focus on those that not only have a solid dividend yield, but also promising growth prospects that will support future dividend growth. We also look for companies with long-term sustainable competitive advantages, also known as an economic moat, and those that are trading at a discount to our fair value. So I'm going to review a few today that meet that criteria. First up is Compass Minerals, ticker CMP. Compass is a four-star rated stock and it currently pays a dividend yield of just under 5%. It's trading at a 25% discount to our fair value, and we rate the company with a wide economic moat. The consensus forward P-E ratio is 25 times, but we expect strong earning growth over the next few years. So Compass's main business line is mining and selling salt, of which the majority is sold for highway de-icing. Our wide economic moat rating is based on the company's position as one of the lowest cost producers in the industry. Salt prices had declined this past winter as its customers were still sitting on huge piles of salt inventory from 2019 when there was a much milder winter and lower than average snowfall. Last winter's snowfall was average, and as such, we expect the inventories will work down to more normalized levels, and that's going to allow Compass to be able to raise prices this next winter. In addition, one of its competitors has closed a mine, which should also reduce industry supply. Lastly, the firm has been in the process of selling non-core assets and using those proceeds to repay debt, thus shoring up its balance sheet and putting the company in a better position to weather any future storms. Next on the list is Gilead, ticker G-I-L-D. Gilead is a four-star rated stock, and it currently pays a dividend yield of 4.2%. It's trading at a 16% discount to our fair value, and we rate the company with a wide economic moat. The consensus forward P.E. ratio is 9.4 times. Gilead develops and markets therapies to treat life-threatening infectious diseases, with the core of its portfolio focused on HIV and hepatitis B and C. These markets are mature and likely won't deliver growth, but they do produce strong margins and cash flow for the firm. Our wide economic moat rating is based in part on its patent production on these existing treatments. Gilead has made several acquisitions to broaden its focus to include pulmonary and cardiovascular diseases and cancer. Success in these areas certainly isn't a given, but we do think that the firm has shown it can translate its extensive understanding of the drug discovery and development process into new therapeutic areas. Lastly for today is Edison International, ticker EIX. Edison is a four-star rated stock that currently pays a 4.6% dividend yield. It's trading at an 18% discount to our fair value, and we rate the company with a narrow economic moat. The consensus forward P-E ratio is 12.6 times. Edison is a regulated utility 
located in Southern California. And we certainly acknowledge that California will always present political, regulatory, and operating challenges for utilities. In fact, our fair value estimate also includes a $9.5 per share deduction to account for management's estimate of future claims that Edison will have to pay out to victims of the 2017 and 18 wildfires. However, the state's aggressive clean energy goals will also produce more growth opportunities than you'd see at most utilities. For example, we think state policies, including California's target to be 100% carbon-free by 2045, will force regulators to support Edison's investment plan and earnings growth. The combination of Edison's plans for $5 billion in annual capital investment, along with good regulatory support, will allow the company to be able to generate 6% annual earnings growth. Growth opportunities at Southern California Edison address a wide range of areas, including grid safety, renewable energy, electric vehicles, distributed generation, and energy storage. Wildfire safety investments alone could reach $4 billion over the next four years. Edison will also benefit over time from the adoption of electric vehicles. Not only will Edison supply the electricity to recharge those batteries, but it also has one of the largest electronic vehicle charging stations in the United States. And lastly, Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. uncovers hot spots for your mid-year portfolio checkup. Hi, I'm Susan Chabinski with Morningstar. We're about halfway through 2021, and many investors may be thinking about conducting a portfolio checkup. What specifically should they be looking at this year? Joining me today to discuss the topic is Christine Benz. Christine is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Hi, Christine. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Susan. It's great to see you. So one question that investors often have is how often should they be checking up on their portfolios and making changes? I really think less is more from the standpoint of portfolio checkups once a year, twice a year, uh, maybe every quarter at the very most. And, you know, I once heard someone compare your portfolio to a bar of soap, that the more you touch it, the smaller it gets. <laughs> so I think that investors should keep that in mind, that if they are in there doing tinkering, being really watchful of their portfolio, I think they're more inclined to get in there and make changes, which in hindsight, they may wish they didn't make. So less is more, I think a good um, maybe once, twice, four times a year review is absolutely plenty. And then what are the key issues that investors should really be paying attention to each and every time they conduct a portfolio checkup? I, also, I always like to start portfolio checkups with kind of a wellness check. Uh, do a little bit of a checkup on how you're doing with your savings rate year to date. Are you in a position to make your maximum allowable uh, contributions to your IRAs and 401ks, or at least put in as much as you possibly can if you're still in accumulation mode. If you're someone who is in drawdown mode, if you're spending from your portfolio, take a look at your spending rate relative to your target withdrawal rate. See if you're on track. See if perhaps in the last six months of the year, you might be able to do a little bit of a course correction to get yourself back on track. So start with that wellness check. Then you can move on to checking your portfolio's asset allocation relative to your targets. And then if your schedule permits, you can get a little bit more granular, looking at your portfolio's style box exposure, looking at your sector exposures, doing a little bit of a dig, a dig on your portfolio holdings themselves, 
perhaps reading Morningstar analyst reports to see if we still like the funds and ETFs and stocks in your portfolio. So those things should be on your dashboard each and every time you check up on your portfolio. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the issues that maybe deserve special attention in 2021. Um, You think it's important this year to maybe consider whether investors, their portfolios have some inflation protection. What should they be looking for? Well, I think that life stage is really important in this context. So if you are a young accumulator with many years to retirement, recognize that you have probably have a couple things built into your plan that are working in your favor to help protect you against inflation. So if you're getting a paycheck, typically over a period of time, you do receive cost of living adjustments to help compensate you for inflation. They may not keep up with what you hope would hope they would be, but you do get some cost of living adjustments over time, typically. Then with your investment portfolio, assuming you're a young investor, you probably have ample stock exposure. And if you don't, you probably should. Over time, one thing we know is that stocks do tend to out-earn inflation. So you're relatively protected as a young investor if you have that paycheck, if you have an equity-heavy portfolio. On the other hand, I think retirees have more reason to take a hard look at their portfolios to make sure that they're protected against inflation. So retirees are typically receiving Social Security, which is an inflation-adjusted benefit. So you're protected with that portion of your income stream. But the portion of your income that you're withdrawing from your portfolio is not inherently inflation-protected. So that argues for you, too, to have ample exposure to stocks and then to make sure that the safer portion of your portfolio, the bonds and perhaps cash investments also have a little bit of inflation and protection. And so that's where I would suggest that retirees do think about making sure that they have Treasury inflation protected securities or perhaps I-bonds, both of which offer some direct insulation against inflation. When we look at professionally managed asset allocation mixes for people getting close to retirement, we typically see in the neighborhood of 25% of that fixed income exposure being in inflation protected bonds. So that's just kind of a benchmark that you can think about with your fixed income exposure, maybe having a fourth of that in bonds that are explicitly inflation protected. Christine, what about categories like commodities? Commodities in particular have performed really well recently in part because of those inflation fears. Is it too late? Possibly. I was recently looking at the performance of various commodities tracking investments. Many of them are up about 50% or even more over the past year through mid-June. So that's a big run-up. Commodities certainly had not performed well prior to this recent period. They had had many years of lagging the equity market, lagging the bond market, lagging nearly everything in sight. The big risk to me for investors who are looking to commodities to provide inflation protection is that there's kind of a mismatch with the risk return profile of commodities relative to the thing that you're trying to address. So when we think about the risk that inflation poses to a portfolio, well, what it is is that it'll take a slight bite out of your portfolio every year out of the purchasing power of that portfolio 
the risk factor by adding commodities, which are a really volatile investment, is that if you get the timing wrong, that you could turn around and lose you know, a lot of your money right out of the box because you mistimed your purchase. So I'm not particularly compelled by the idea of adding commodities as an inflation protectant. I think treasury inflation protected securities are a much surer thing if your goal is to insulate yourself against unexpected shocks in inflation. And let's talk a little bit about bonds. Um, interest rates have ticked up a little bit in part because of those inflation fears, which has sort of dampened the performance of bonds and bond funds. How should investors be thinking about bonds today? Well, I do think that you want to have them, especially if you are close to retirement. You want to make sure that you have that ballast in your portfolio that you could draw upon if we did have some equity market weakness. You certainly don't want to overdo your exposure to safe investments like bonds because some of the interest rate risks that you alluded to, Susan, and also just the fact that we have very low yields on bonds today, which suggests that their return potential could be pretty constrained. With fixed in income exposure, my bias is usually to keep that portion of the portfolio pretty safe. So to not overextend into some of the lower quality fixed income assets that might boast attractive yields, but instead stick with high quality fixed income investments, um, generally stick with short and intermediate term bonds, but really not take too much risk with that portion of the portfolio, recognizing that you want it to be there to be something that you could spend through if you needed to in a period of equity market weakness. We've seen a really strong rally in some of the risky fixed income assets already. I would be reticent to suggest that investors move into them in a really big way at this point in the cycle. And speaking of rallies, we've seen a tremendous rally in value stocks this year, which were quite unloved for a very long time. Um, is there anything investors should be doing in response to that? Well, if investors haven't taken a look at their portfolio style box exposures for a while, they may still find that they are overextended into the growth side of the style box. When we look at performance any longer than a, than one year, you still see very strong outperformance of growth stocks relative to value. So if you haven't looked at that recently, you may still consider adding to value, but both sides of the style box have now performed very well over the past year. Um, and so there's probably not a lot of adjusting that needs to be done. Certainly, if you're an index fund, in, fund investor, this is really out of your hands. You're sort of leaving the market to make these decisions for you. But if you're someone who has more finely tuned holdings in your portfolio, you might see if you are perhaps still a little bit overextended to the technology stocks, to the growth side of the style box. Well, Christine, thanks for giving us a game plan for our mid-year portfolio review this year. We appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. 
The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.